In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Have You Seen, the TV review show that makes sure you never waste your time on shows that aren't worth the bother, presented by me, Peter Fincher. And me, Mariella Frostrup. And Mariella, we've got a brilliant guest. We've got three more shows to talk about. Before we do that, I happen to know you're about to go to New York, I think, tomorrow, and you'll be back by next week when we do this again. <laughs> I will be I will be back by next week, I promise. And yeah, I'm quite excited to go to New York because I haven't actually been there since before the pandemic, but the incentive was too great because I'm launching Menopause Mandate there, which is my little advocacy group of amazing women because the Americans, believe it or not, are even further behind than us in terms of recognising women's fertility journey and in particular in the workplace – we're also launching the Women in Work Summit. But all Hang of that on, aren't aside... Aren't you missing the really key point here? What's that? Aren't you meeting Naomi Watts? I am meeting Naomi Watts because she's going wow. to be the co-chair of Menopause Mandate in the US. She's already like deeply invested in the whole menopause space. She started this incredible range of products for midlife women called uh, Stripes. It's one of the first beauty companies ever to, you know, unashamedly go for the mature female market. So she's really pioneering and quite brave, really, as an actress, because you know that most of them are spending their time trying to look 20 when they're 50. And she's not doing that at all. She's been really, yeah, quite extraordinary. Did you know mm. that Naomi Watts was once in The Bill on ITV? <laughs> no, I didn't, but I'm going to ask her about it. I, I used to run the company that made The Bill. Later on, I cancelled The Bill. It's on my conscience. No. I brought The Bill to an end. I felt Why? so Why? terrible the bill about was it. Really, the Bill was really popular. Yeah. Sorry, I don't want to rub salt no, into no, the no, wound. No, no, it's but... a very fair point. And The Bill had it had its glory days, but it was losing audience and it was losing relevance. And, uh, you, you know, it was just one of these things in television. Long-running shows have to come to an end. The thing I hated about the job I was doing at the time was that occasionally you had to say, we need the money to spend on something else. And quite rightly, all the people involved probably cursed me and it's actually it's the only time in my life that I had some I don't want to call them death threats but some quite unpleasant emails from complete strangers sort of I know where you live type stuff and I mean it passed and I'm but alive. now that you have your own production company very successful well again obviously because you had one before do you take it personally when things get cancelled? 
You can't not do that because you think of the people working on programmes and you think of teams. And this is why, to be perfectly honest, television needs both groups of people. It needs people making programmes who care passionately about them. And it needs people to make decisions about, well, if you didn't have commissioners, then indeed programmes would go on forever. And, you know, it goes with the territory, if you like, of doing those jobs. Personally, I'd rather be on the other side, which is where I am, where you make programmes and you really hope they'll get recommissioned. You really hope audiences will like them. So stressful, though, but I'll tell you what, it's not nearly as stressful as taking a seven-hour flight to New York and knowing that I'm going to be at the mercy of whoever's programmed the in-flight entertainment because my great fear in life is being stuck on the plane with nothing to watch. So you know what I do? Yeah. I, I tend to find a series that I have yet to watch the whole of and download it onto my iPad and then just sit there watching that. Why do they get it so wrong with in-flight entertainment? Well, by the way, if you choose one series, what if you don't like it and you're half an hour in? Well, so that's you, you, the other you, stress. Take, yeah, that's another stress. <laughs> but I do think, I don't know if you know this, when you're selling a programme, there's a sort of the different rights packages and the rights for in-flight entertainment are what's called trapped audiences. That always used to amuse me. So the trapped audiences' rights have been assigned to British Airways or Qantas or something. And you're absolutely right. We used to get onto a plane. And I can remember when it was an excitement that there was in-flight entertainment at all. And you couldn't believe you had your own individual television screen in front well, of you. It was something to do when you weren't smoking, it, wasn't it? Exactly. <laughs> terrible, generally speaking, terrible quality, a sort of five-inch television screen. And you could actually choose to watch this or that programme. I don't think that really happens on planes anymore because surely, like you, we all get on with our iPad or our laptop and if we've got any sense in our head, we'll have downloaded what we want to watch. And a flight to America that, is a long time, but you could get through an entire Netflix series on it. But I was hoping that you might be able, because I can't even remember what we watched last week. I've been doing so much watching. I was hoping that you could recommend something that I might just relax and watch. I think I've watched all the morning shows, so I'm done with that. Anything else? Well, the last flight I went on, I watched, <laughs> it's a bit embarrassed to say this, a Netflix three-part documentary called Get Gotti, which is uh, which is about is that... a mafia leader. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Why did I choose it? I chose it because I thought, I think I know what this will be. It's got that sort of leered appeal of a, a series about the mafia with lots of interesting footage from the 1990s and the 2000s. And it's an example, and this is one of the things with television that we sometimes look for. We sometimes look to television to surprise us and to say, this is going to take you somewhere you weren't expecting to be taken. And? I, no, it didn't surprise me at all. It was exactly, <laughs> it was what, like what it was called Ron Seal. It was exactly what it said on the tin. It was a good three-part, very well-made, good three-part documentary about a mafia leader who ends up in prison and then dies, as you hope they all do. So, well, what I'm slightly hoping is one of the programmes uh, that we've got this week, um, uh, which I'm not going to fully endorse, uh, as you'll discover, but nevertheless, I feel it's got potential. And if that's possible for a download, then I might take that with me. You can guess oh. which one it well, is. Yeah, but let's leave our listeners guessing because we're going to come to that well, one. I'm leaving you we're guessing more importantly. I, I think I've guessed. I think I've guessed, but we'll... Yada, yada, you've yet to come up with a suggestion for me for the flight. Well, you can watch Get Gotti. 
You won't go wrong with get gutted. That'll be get three hours gutted. of your life. I said I wanted something lightweight, no, 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 like okay. you know, just make it pass well, in a bubble you, of frivolity. Or you go down. I mean, Planet Earth three, which is running at the moment, and I, I no, I, no, I, I need no, a narrative no, okay, to distract me from enough. the plane. I want a strong yeah. narrative. I want it frothy. I want yes. it something that I probably wouldn't watch at home. You keep thinking about it. Maybe by the end of the podcast, you might have come up with one decent suggestion. No, I'm not watching Get Gotti, and I'll be so traumatized by the time I get off the plane. They'll have to hospitalise me. Um, but shall we now get on with our recommendations for this week? Absolutely. Or and not? then should maybe introduce our guest. Well, maybe you should just do that bit of script that you're oh, meant to sorry, be reading yes. out. So on today's episode, we're going to be talking about the Bond franchise, the James Bond franchise, first outing on the small screen in Amazon's 007 Race to a Million. Peter, yes. you're showing your age. What? Tell me how you say 007. 007. Thank you. Okay. Is that an age thing? Well, I don't know what it is. It's 007, you're quite right. Senility I think it's always, struck. I think it's always been 007. I just said it wrong. The return of the 80s-based Australian newsroom drama The Newsreader to BBC Two and a first look at the new four-part Robbie Williams documentary imaginatively called Robbie Williams on Netflix. <laughs> We're not going to have to talk about these programmes on our own. In fact, we've got a, well, I like to call our guests the mediator. Yeah. And we have a mediator uh, this week and a really fantastic one because it is the wonderful broadcaster, writer and comedian and, very importantly, my Times Radio colleague, Aisha Hazarika. After a decade working in Westminster as a special advisor to Gordon Brown, Harriet Harman and then Ed Miliband, Aisha took what, frankly, seems to me an entirely natural next step and embarked on a highly successful career in comedy. I think when you work in politics, you need a laugh. As if that wasn't enough, she writes a column in the iPaper and is a regular guest on programmes as varied as Question Time, Have I Got News For You and Richard Osman's House of Games. And she also presents the Drive programme on Times Radio every weekend, which is frankly unmissable. And we are, of course, delighted uh, to be able to add Have You Seen to your burgeoning list of credits, Aisha. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm presuming that you agreed to do it because of my presence rather than Peter's. <laughs> Listen, I don't want to be rude to poor Peter, but I mean, Mariella, I mean, let's be honest. You're the only show in town. Let's be honest. Sorry, Peter. I, d I know my place. Don't worry. <laughs> there you go. We're, we're, we're sisters against the bureaucracy. That's, yeah. that's how we like the to piss ourselves. Patriarch is what so you normally call it. But we are the sisterhood, aren't we, Mariella? We fair, really are. I don't think I represent bureaucracy. I think I, I, well, what, I'll take prefer? almost any insult from you you care to throw at me, Mariella, but bureaucracy. I'd lo oh, I no. love that he'd rather be called the patriarchy than the bureaucracy. <laughs> I would have thought the bureaucracy was a little more benign. To be fair to Peter, pa patriarchy feels a bit more thrusting and manly than admin. It, it's, a, it, it's a sexier role, isn't it? I, I think that is his point. Peter, the man who told me why it is that men like pussy bow shirts, which I came wearing one day, I said to him, why do men, Matt Chorley, you know, our colleague at Times Radio, was getting all overexcited. Oh, you've got a pussy bow on today. I was like, how do you even know what it's called? I said to Peter, why is it that men get all excited? And he said, oh, because you just think you just have to untie it and it's off. But I mean, it never even occurred to me. In fact, my pussy bow shirt has got a zip and then a tie. So it'd be very difficult to remove. 
That would be a bit of a false trade description for a lot of these people. They'd be a bit... I think a lot of men get very excited about the pussy bow for one, obviously, obviously one obvious reason. They just like saying the word pussy. But secondly, <laughs> I think they've got secret Margaret Thatcher fantasies as well. Oh, my God. And do you think that's who I'm did channeling she, when I wear, wear it? Them? That's really embarrassing. That really yes. weird. Well, look, Margaret Thatcher was famed for her pussy bow I'm, I'm, I'm willing to take almost anything you throw at me, but I'm, I believe me... <laughs> Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> Having a secret Margaret Tha- Thatcher fantasy, I totally reject that. I haven't got, I never Peter, have. I think one. the gentleman doth protest too much. She's anyway, got it in one, Aisha. Let's get back, so, back to the patriarchy, because it leads us so nicely to our first programme that we're going to discuss, 007 Race to a Million. Not so, 007, Peter. Oh God, it's, you know what they say about an old dog and new tricks? 007, Race to a Million, the James Bond franchise, and James Bond surely represents the patriarchy, gets the adventure TV treatment in Amazon Prime's 007 Race to a Million. The premise is a simple one. Nine pairs of contestants take on James Bond-style challenges in iconic Bond locations in a competition to win a million pounds. Alongside the challenges, the teams also have to find and answer questions hidden in the different Bond locations around the world. Only then are they allowed to advance to the next stage. And asking those questions is the controller whose voice you might just recognise. million pound man what wouldn't you do i put real people into a james bond adventure and placed 10 questions around the world if they find them answer them they win a million pounds the only thing standing in their way is me that was of course brian cox of logan roy fame doing his best bond villain uh well what do we think of the show? Were you shaken or stirred, Aisha? <laughs> I have to say, I was sort of slightly neither. I was very excited to see Brian Cox popping up because that's just always a massive amount of excitement. I was quite disappointed he didn't have like a white cat on his lap, you know, for sort of full Bond <laughs> villain of effect. Pussy bows. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and... I, look, I, I thought, you know, it was an interesting concept and, you know, I did like the fact that they were sort of reenacting some of these great cinematic scenes from Bond. I just feel that they're putting themselves through so much pain for one million pounds. I feel, I know it sounds like a lot of money, but all I can think of is Austin Powers when the guy was going one million pounds. <laughs> I think inflation has kicked in. I actually think one million pounds wouldn't even cover your heating bill for the winter. So I think for what they're going through, they should be given more money. Well, you say that, but I mean, Matt Hancock went to the jungle for a a third of that, didn't he? So, you know, (laughs) people will do out for cash these days, I think. You know, the thing about it for me was I I couldn't quite work out what it was. First of all, the the opening titles, obviously one of the most famous aspects of every Bond film. Because they were obviously not as expensive, you know, they spend millions and millions and millions on those titles. They looked a bit in the school of Bond. And so that was already slightly disconcerting. And then I just felt like it really has absolutely nothing to do with Bond at all. It just feels like a shameless sort of marketing of a concept. I thought those two brothers uh, from East London were really great. And I mean, I suppose we should talk about the concept of the show, which is these contestants. I mean, it's quite simple, really, isn't it? They all stand to win a million 
pounds, but they win it in increments and it's a sort of knockout. Basically, if you don't manage to answer a question after each specific challenge, then you're out. And I also, I, I, I never thought I'd say this about Brian Cox, but I just couldn't work out what he was doing there. It all felt a bit hammy. And he's not a hammy actor. And it also, it, it sort of felt unnecessary in a way. But as a sort of formatted show, I'm, I'm Peter, I'm sure you've got big opinions about this. I've, no, I haven't got dramatic opinions. But I mean, to the point about what is Brian Cox doing there? Well, I think he's banking quite a large check because it's it's quite an easy role for Brian Cox because he never has to get his feet wet at all. He just sits in front of a bank of monitors. They've hand him up. I, I mean, I felt the James Bond music in particular, by the way, and the iconography of James Bond does give it a lift that at the beginning you just think, I can't quite believe I'm hearing that music on a reality television programme. I've only ever seen it in James Bond films. Then you begin and you realise that it's not a million miles away from something like Race Across the World that we discussed a few weeks ago. It is one of those shows. I thought the casting was really good. Yes, I did. We ought to be careful a little bit with our spoilers here, but the Cockney brothers are kind of, they're just dream casting. Gold dust, I think they called it in the trade. Gold dust. I read an interview with one of the producers who said that they deliberately hold back to doing too many Bond references too early on. And I think that's a kind of brave decision. And as you go further into it, you get more specifically Bond kind of references. But the result is that in the first episode, there isn't all that much about James Bond other than the music and the and the graphics and, and so on. And you also only meet two sets of contestants, as it were. And that felt a bit odd as well. well I, I, see, I, I saw that as brave. I saw that brave because one of the problems with these things, and only a couple of weeks ago we discussed Survivor, which has got, you know, it's in the same genre as you meet so many people in episode one you can't remember who they are so I could see myself in the position of the producers making the decisions that they made I I think they've made very good casting obviously wonderful locations very good decisions I honestly I think people are going to like it it's very hooky it hooks you at the end of the first step defies you not to watch the next one Mm. which is what the streamers really care about and just it's just the USP of James Bond look I think the casting was good I thought those brothers were brilliant because they're really funny and charming and everything in their tight jeans I I love the tight (laughs) jeans like who goes to climb a mountain in Scotland (laughs) in a pair of jeans you can barely walk in because they're so tight it's like it's like climbing sort of you know Everest in a pair of flip-flops kind of thing it's it's that sort of vibe but for me I just feel the big trick that they've missed is look you've got the James Bond thing I would have hammed that up a bit more to be honest to to Peter's point Well, and to have the white cat on Brian Cox's lap exactly but also you've got Brian Cox there like what a massive coup he is probably right now one of the most famous acclaimed actors on the planet and of course some of the scenes are actually quite succession and the helicopters and all of that kind of thing I think they could have used him in a way which is slightly better I think it does look like he's ringing it in and they should have at least got him to swear one once every episode. I really liked the challenge bit of it and I thought that the actual shooting of this the scenery and everything was really amazing. I mean really up to kind of Bond standards particularly the, the episode in Scotland but I did keep wondering as well if they're all alone on this mountain okay and don't just shout drone at me Peter but I did keep wondering how on earth are they filming this? 
<laughs> with drones is the answer. But yeah, of course. I knew it. Uh, of, uh, of course, but not only, not only with drones. In, in that sense, it's like watching planet Earth and thinking how on earth can they manage to be filming the leopard from above and yet they've also got a close-up of its face. You know, these are the tricks of television, the artificial television. And when we call it reality TV, we know it's... It's yeah, a form of artificial sorry, television Sorry, what I'm reality. trying to say is I, I kept wondering, is there a camera? You know, because there were, there were certain bits that were clearly on a drone. Yes. And then there were bits that were very close up. And I thought that looks to me much mm. more like there's a camera crew there. And if there's a camera crew there with you, it changes the whole dynamic of what's happening yes you know are they in the wilderness alone is it touch and go whether they'll ever find their way out are they going to drown in the loch all of those things are they are they going to get a cheeky delivery yeah. like what were you they know, eating they, they should have shown some <laughs> snacking as well i mean you don't walk for eight hours without a snack do maybe, you? maybe like planet earth they should do a 10 minute bit at the end saying this is how we filmed it so, but but i have I'd to like say that. this is speculation because we don't know what viewers think what makes you go and watching these things one is characters and you get to like the brothers or whoever the other characters are. The other is what's at stake and what you were referring to, Mariella, uh, which is get one question wrong and you're out. I think that's quite a brave decision because you could get really invested in a pair of characters and then suddenly they've gone. You know, the thing I slightly disagree with you on, Peter, is I think that the secret sauce to any good reality TV show is you don't just want to like the characters you want drama between the characters. You want some beef. You want some kind of treachery. But I think the best sort of reality, te- like let's say Traitors, which was such a smash hit from, from last year. The reason we all love that so much is we just love seeing the worst of humanity in terms of everybody like lying and cheating and you know all the sort of badness that comes out in reality tv that's why we like that watching the parliament channel so much you know it's sort of <laughs> i get enough of it on the parliament channel and i actually get a bit tired of being exposed to the worst of humanity rather than the best and i thought that it was quite a good thing that they had you know like these two um brothers who and really the two love sisters, each other and, they and, adore each other. and i quite like that sort of family dynamic because i think as well in high stress situations which perhaps we haven't quite got to yet in the series that the, that can be quite combustible as well you know because you all know what it's like in families and you fall back on old patterns so maybe that's yet to come but I think I don't know am I just getting old I just like I people being nice think to lose, each other I think you're losing your touch Mariella <laughs> oh, we want no. the beef oh, we no. want the beef <laughs> but to, your, the to the point you've just made, they've clearly paced it quite carefully. So it doesn't shoot its bolt all in the first episode. That is a revolting way of describing it, Peter. And it's so 1980s that I think you ought to retract it immediately. In why, fact, why this week's swear jar is now at £350 just for that hang one on, expression. On. I don't even know what that expression means. I just what, use shoot, it. That, do, you want me to, do you want me to explain <laughs> it's it? It's not a sexual expression. It is a totally sexual expression. No. No, it isn't. No, it's what something to do with shooting. Is? It's to do with shooting. Oh my God! You, you don't know call what it, it means. Yes, but you don't call it's you wanking. Bolt. No, it doesn't. Oh my heavens! Oh Aisha, Aisha, up here. can you can you adjudicate this rather I can weird adjudicate. dispute? It's, it it is ejaculation. It is, is definitely what it means. sexual. It's definitely oh, sexual. Do you know what? It's, it's referred to uh, a gentleman um, <laughs> having a gentleman. lovely time and maybe having slightly. Too lovely a time and, and finishing the party early. <laughs> I feel unbelievably naive here. I've always thought it's one of those things, like a lot of expressions, that go is something to do with sport 
assault and shooting and all that kind of stuff. Peter, let me recommend right, to up. you as up. a good friend that you never use never that use expression again. again in polite really company okay. or indeed Well, on the let podcast. me put it another way. This, I think they've <laughs> deliberately ma- make sure that it doesn't peak too soon, obviously. Oh, my That's goodness. That's also an expression. He can't stop. Anything's a sexual expression <laughs> when you want it to be. Um, uh, but it wasn't intended to be. He's got sex on the they, brain, they, What I'm saying is they're pacing... <laughs> It's all that talk of uh, pussy bull blouses at the start of the show. They're, you started it, Mariella, to be fair. They're pacing themselves. Set him off. They're pacing themselves towards a climax sometime in, in episode eight, is what I'm trying to say. Bring and on you, that white fluffy pussy. If you pussy can find it right sexual in that, then you've got a dirty mind than I have. Um, okay. I think we need to move on. We need to move on. No, but I'm going to move on because you've already done the oh, introduction okay, right. to that. Yeah, so yeah, we've yeah. had enough of you now for a few minutes. Actually, this is quite a difficult one. Peter does like to round up at the end and work out what everyone's saying. I'm saying personally that I will watch another episode because I just want to see how they play it out from now on in. I I am slightly enamoured of the brothers but I don't think I'll make the full series based on having watched the first episode. Aisha what's your summary? I think I'm not going to be pursuing this because I just found it I didn't find that there was enough to really hook me in I was really excited to see Brian Cox, but then I was quite quickly disappointed because I don't think they use him enough. Mm, It's very beautifully filmed. It's very sweeping and all of that. But yeah, for me, it's just missing a bit of, it's missing a bit of zip. Peter? I'm going to go watching it. Okay. (laughs) That was succinct. My goodness, what's happened to you? All episodes of 007 Race to a Million are available on Amazon. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Look, let's move on to something that I am desperate to get Aisha's take on, I have to say, because it is a series called The Newsreader, which many people may have missed, myself included. I didn't see the first series. So it's the second series of this Australian 80s newsroom drama broadcast on ABC in Australia and now on uh, BBC Two here. And in a way, it's sort of like an Australian historical version of The Morning Show, but obviously set in the 80s. We have 
have promised hidden gems on this podcast, and I think this show definitely qualifies in that category. It's set in the world of 1980s television journalism in Oz. We see the personal lives and professional rivalries of the News at Six newsroom slowly intertwine, and then, of course, begin to fall apart, which Aisha will love because she's already told us she likes a bit of jeopardy. And it's all set against the backdrop of VHS tapes, Bakelite phones, and extraordinary shoulder pads and bouffant hairdos. Um, and that was just the men, by the way. Um, <laughs> series two opens in 1987. It's an election year in Australia. Anchors and lovers, Helen Norville and Dale Jennings, now firmly established as the golden couple of news, are preparing to front News at Six's election coverage. Though politics, I think it's fair to say, isn't the big question on everyone's lips. Please welcome the golden couple of news, Miss Helen Norville and Mr. Dale Jennings in 1987. Can we expect a newsroom wedding? The whole country is on the brink of a colossal change and it is our job to report it. Now, journalism can be such a difficult thing to portray on television. Uh, So often uh, it becomes reduced to caricature. They don't quite get the cut and thrust of it. Sometimes they just don't get how nasty it is. And there's very little middle ground between, say, the hagiography of all the president's men and and the grubby tabloid instincts of Bridget Jones's boss at Sit Up Britain. We all remember him. Uh, But do you think that it feels... Aisha, like it's captured the soul of a newsroom? I hadn't heard of the newsreader. So I was like, oh, what's this all about? And I'm always a bit nervous about um, the dramatic narrative about journalism and politics. I think if you're close to any subject and you see it characterised, you're kind of nervous. I think lawyers feel the same way about, about legal dramas. So I was quite nervous about watching this, but I have to say I absolutely loved it. I thought this episode was completely brilliant. It sort of captured the pressure, the terror and the thrill of covering election night, you know, particularly when you're in the newsroom, when you want to be part of it. There were so many good lines in it. And I think even though it's set back in 1987, it still felt very current in terms of some of the big themes, particularly in terms of ratings And what news organisations have to navigate between, you know, the integrity of the journalists on screen and then the management upstairs and this unbelievable battle for ratings. And there's a couple of great lines really at the beginning where the sort of big bosses have to convey to the the journalists. And the journalists, obviously, it's their big moment in the spotlight. They want to do a really, really good job on it. And they're told, no, no, the bosses above are not seeing this election as a news event. They are seeing this election as a network branding (laughs) event. And I thought that was absolutely brilliant. They were like, this is a a kind of an event you want to sort of bring the drinks to and, and, you know, get the barbecue going. And there's actually, I thought, you know, we just talked about Brian Cox and succession. There's actually quite a lot of echoes of succession I thought in this episode there was even a bit of music in it which sounded very succession like when they are watching election night at the mansion of one of the big bosses and of course if you are a succession fan you will remember that absolutely unbelievably stressful episode where they are covering the the election and it is this huge pressure on on the network from the powers that be about who is going to call it first it's the race to who is going to call it first I thought it was brilliant you mentioned that succession episode my only problem with this I do think it's really well written and I thought it was really interesting and I think I'd quite like to keep watching it but just there wasn't
wasn't enough people around for it to be a proper newsroom. And I found that kind of a bit <laughs> odd. You know, there's three people in a studio. My, I mean, I know, I know Australian has a cultural sort of cringe and feels like it's smaller than other places. But this felt ridiculously sort of cottage industry. It was like knit your own election broadcast. Well, it's funny, you see, because I felt that as well. There weren't quite enough people. I thought that's obviously a budgetary issue. They couldn't afford. But I... Like both of you, I love it. And I think we're all in violent agreement here. I prefer it, say, to the morning show. And one of the problems I have with the morning show, that I know a lot of people love the morning show, is that it feels so glossy and expensive. And I keep thinking it's somehow about Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston rather than the characters that they play, because they're such big stars. Whereas here, there's something kind of more grounded about this and uh, weirdly I can relate to this episode that we've seen on election night because my production company we made the channel 4 election program for uh, 2019 where Boris got his big majority and we did that thing which this program does it which is to try to mix comedy and Aisha you'll be an expert in this mix comedy with serious election news and I'll be honest it didn't really work because the well, straight resent presenters I nearly said presenters I should have done the straight presenters sit there thinking why is this bloody comedian using our bare time talking rubbish uh, and and that's exactly what happens on this and it's so true to life. Peter that is so funny you've said that because I I scribbled some notes as I was watching this and I I wrote down the big bosses want it to be relaxed and irreverent and then I've written down like that Channel 4 yeah, programme. Oh, it was I one was of the longest part- nights of my life, Aisha. And you. I was part of that Channel 4 programme. I came along at about 4.30 in the morning <laughs> and there was like half the audience looked like they were like asleep. The presenters were all quite stressed out. And, and I remember coming on set and I was like, wow, there is quite an atmosphere here now. <laughs> but what about, okay, what about the incredible misogynism that's evident here, which I thought was actually very, very true to the, era and the amount of flack that she gets and the way they talk about her. Helen Norville is the character name, but it's Anna Torv who, who plays her. And and they talk about her being too aggressive and, and too sort of strident. And and you think, well, she's there interviewing a politician, an ex-prime minister. Of course, that's what she's meant to be doing. But you, I mean, I have to say, I watched it with a degree of relief thinking, I don't think it's quite that bad anymore, Aisha. Oh, interesting. I mean, look, I I completely agree. I mean, the she couldn't win Helen. Like she was an she's a brilliant, brilliant journalist. She absolutely races to get that interview. She bags that big interview, and she's landing all the right questions. And all the big bosses are watching her, going, "Go on, absolutely lay it on him." Until one big boss is like, "Oh, she's a hair too aggressive," and everyone's suddenly like, yeah, "You're right, just a hair too aggressive." And then the word "shrill" is used about her at the end, which is such a classic trope, which is used yeah. against. I've never heard a man with. described as shrill. Have correct, you? Correct. But correct. I've met a few. Who were. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, haven't we all? But I th- I think, you know, it's a great snapshot of how hard it was for women in the media at that point. And of course, things have, have got better, but there is still that element of, of sexism. I was at a big event just the other night with lots of senior women and journalists and everyone still got their stories about, you know, the way women are, are described and and that kind of thing. The other thing which I thought was interesting, and I agree with you, you, you guys, about the accuracy the other thing that isn't quite right is that 
the the newsroom that they portray not only is it very sparse it's way more ethnically diverse than it would have been in 1987 as well. So I sort of get what they're trying to do. But I think we've got to be honest about what an Australian newsroom or even a British newsroom or an American newsroom would really have looked like in 1987. Do you think they should have set it now? And I, I'm, I'm, as you speak about it, I find myself thinking... Why I, the I mean, 1980s? I think we love looking mm. at the hairstyles and the costumes and feeling distant from it. But would it be really that different if it was set right now in 2023? I, I, actually, I think to Aisha's point, I don't think it would be that different. I, I mean, I do think things have changed, certainly on the misogynism front. You couldn't be so uh, obvious about it, but I think insidiously that would still exist. I think it would actually benefit. I know that sounds mad. I think it might benefit from not being a historical piece because in a way, the sort of Bakelite and the hairdos and things, I just found a bit distracting, whereas the dynamic of a newsroom, what happens there, how those things play out in a much more realistic way than, as you say, I mean, I like the morning show, but I like it because it is literally like watching paint dry when you want to relax. You know, I can just look at the outfits and yeah. sort of wonder how much money it's cost to have Jennifer Aniston's but face. I, I, I don't know if this is but, just me, but because uh, this is the second Australian series we've discussed on this podcast, the first being Colin from Accounts. I love being transported to that world, an Australian world, when it's done as well as both these series do. They're really, really classy, completely different from each other, but really classy series. Whereas at any one time, I can see America on screen all the time. Mm. There's so many things set in America. We don't so often see things set in Australia. It's one of the things I really like about it. Yeah, and in a way, I think it feels, you know, I'm complaining about the fact it doesn't feel realistic, which I think is probably mainly a budgetary thing. I quite like the fact that it isn't slick. And and that's almost a relief. And I feel like the more and more of these streaming platforms with the more and more money, everything now is you know, yeah. enormous sort of K2 levels of slick. No, I, I agree. I, I agree with you, Peter. I think the Australians have a wonderful lightness of touch in terms of how they do their dramas. I loved Colin. And their comedy. And, I mean, and their comedy hmm. is just brilliant. And, you know, I think they have a they have a humility to how they kind of do themselves. It's not all kind of completely over the top. And I think there was almost an element, because it was a lower scale production, it was slightly folksy and I kind of liked that about it. I quite like shows where they do look at like local newsrooms from, from you know, a, a, a long time ago. I mean, I was thinking about what Mariella said there about could you do something which is more up to date? I mean... In terms of more recent sexism in newsrooms, the film Bombshell was yeah, a really oh yeah. Br- um, brilliant. I thought it was a one. really good film. Because I thought that was fantastic. And there was a TV series on the same subject as well. Wasn't yeah. It? I thought they yeah, were both yeah. good. And I feel like that really captured quite brutally mm. how, you know, the sort of overt sexism that went on, but the sort of structural stuff that goes on behind the scenes as well. And also, look, a lot of these big battles in media companies, whether you go back to the 1970s, and the 1980s, they're still going on today. They're endlessly fascinating in terms of the power structures in these media companies. Totally agree. We were just talking earlier about the fact that I am flying a long haul flight tomorrow because I, I like to download something to watch because you can never rely the, the on what's, on, what's yeah. on what's on the plane and I thought if I can download I'm going to yeah, take yeah. the rest of it with me um, so that's my thumbs up Aisha oh total thumbs up for me I'm going to watch it all I loved it and me too 
So weird. God, this is amazing. We're in complete agreement. Goodness, how <laughs> wonderful. I feel like getting out a little violin okay. and playing it. Well, let's see if the agreement continues. <laughs> All episodes of Series 2 of The Newsreader are available on the BBC iPlayer now. Hot on the heels of last month's David Beckham documentary, the latest megastar to undergo the Netflix access doc treatment is Robbie Williams. A release to coincide with the 25th anniversary of Robbie's solo career. This is, in the words of Netflix, the definitive four-part documentary series on the most successful UK solo artists of all time. Now, hang on a minute. That's in the words of Netflix. No, Elton John? I mean, there's more successful people than El- Robbie Williams, aren't there? Yes, I haven't actually what looked is the into definition that. We haven't done a fact mo- check on that, Aisha and I. Which we, Aisha and I would normally do a fact check, but we haven't had time this week. <laughs> uh, don't think that that happens a lot on Times I'm Radio. Normally, saying, normally Paul, we're Paul right Ma- up to date. Paul McCartney. I mean, I'm simply saying there have been some very successful UK solo artists. Let's hear a clip. It's astounding what's happened in my life. But the past has me in a headlock. Something has to give. You know, you're only supposed to do this at the pearly gates of St. Peter. This looking back at your life. As you can hear in that clip there, Robbie's clearly in reflective mood as he looks back at his career so far. So what did we think of Robbie Williams, Mariella? Well, um... I have met Robbie Williams a few times over the years. The, the, I think the first time I sort of properly encountered him was at one of those sort of debauched 1990s nights and he was not in a good state, but he managed to get up and recite a poem that he'd written. And the thing that was quite extraordinary was you could see this guy, you know, really the worse for wear. And yet this poem was incredibly beautiful and poignant and instantly endeared him to me. And I've seen him at a couple of other, you know, show busy things and stuff. I think that the problem with this documentary is that the kind of narcissism that drives you to that level of fame and that clearly tortures him to an extent wasn't in any way mitigated by the people making the film or Robbie himself. And so from the very beginning, I was sitting there thinking, what are you doing lying on that bed in your underpants and vest when, you know, you're making a documentary, a serious documentary about your life and your career and the traumas you've been through? I I just felt that someone should have said to him, Robbie, you know what, relax a bit, be yourself, let it go, and actually it'll play out a lot better for you in the end. I mean, I thought after about 10 minutes, I thought surely it can't all be just him sitting on his bed or sitting wherever, watching footage of himself, talking about himself. It, and, but it is. Now, Aisha, what, what did you think? Are you a fan? Uh, uh, well, I, I mean, I agree with a, a lot of that. I mean, I was working actually EMI Records back in the day when Robbie was the absolute golden boy, bringing a huge amount of money into the company. And I remember he came to speak to some big event with the executives and he joked about his, you know, debauched lifestyle. And I think he called his pad in LA like Pants Down Palace because like that is basically where he would do all his kind of like legendary shagging and debauchery and all of that sort of thing. So 
I mean, I've never fallen for the kind of charms of, of Robbie Williams. I, you know, I think he's a great artist and stuff, but I've always found him slightly um, annoying. When the whole thing started, and as you say, there's this very maudlin scene of him in bed, and he says, you know, I, I'm trying to sort the wreckage of the past, and when I'm not on stage being electric and, and, and putting myself out there... I'm collapsed in, in a heap in bed as a hermit. At the beginning, I thought, oh, that is interesting. You know, that juxtaposition between being the big clown and the big performing monkey and then the, you know, the highs of the, the being on stage mm. and the girls screaming at you and then the, the counter, the juxtaposition of that, which is actually a lot of these young stars that find fame really early. They're in the spotlight having everything, all the adoration, all the sex, everything like that. And then the reality is a lot of travelling, a lot of jet lag and being very lonely in a hotel room. So at the beginning, all that, you know, him in bed, I was like, okay, I'm prepared to go with this because I I think that's probably a juxtaposition of, of his life. But then I'm afraid I do sort of agree with you, Marielle. I didn't find it that massively interesting. My main observations were like, you know, when you're young and fit and you're really ripped, don't get loads of tattoos because one day you're going to have a dad bod and it's just not going to look good. I just felt he is a really sad cliche of the person that had this extreme fame when they were young and they didn't know how to handle it. And I understand that is an interesting story, but we have heard it lots and lots of times. I thought that the most interesting thing about this was his absolute searing insecurity and jealousy of Gary Barlow (laughs) and I thought the big reveal to me in all of this and I, I don't think this is intentional it made me think bloody hell Gary Barlow was a workhorse wasn't he you know when he had his lyric book his prize lyric book of hit after hit after hit it made me think Gary Barlow was really the linchpin of that whole thing. You know, he was doing all the work in terms of coming up with the songs and all of that sort of stuff. And I think... What about that scene when his daughter gets into bed with him? Robbie Williams' daughter gets into bed with him and you think she's going to snuggle up and say something kind of sweet or I don't know. And she goes, which one of them did you hate the most? (laughs) And I was really really shocked by that because I thought, honestly, that just highlights the fact that this is something that eats him up on a daily basis because how else would his little child know about it? He is consumed with jealousy, insecurity and hatred for Gary Barlow. That is the thing that comes across the most. I don't I don't know Robbie Williams. I've never been at debauch parties or industry events with him. But I do know Gary Barlow and he's a really nice guy. And Gary Barlow is almost the precise opposite of Robbie Williams. I, I do, Actually, the contrast I would draw is with the Beckham stock, which we haven't really talked about in the podcast, but I saw it all. Whether that's a good thing to admit or not, I don't know. At the end of it, tattoos aside, Aisha, I liked David Beckham more than I did at the beginning. I really came to like him. At the end of this, I thought, I thought I was going to really like you, Robbie Williams. But I think you're not likeable at all. I missed the the thing that I thought. And I wonder if this is a question about all of these new documentaries that are coming out now about stars that tend to be very much like the artistic control seems to be in the star's hands. Completely, Um, yeah. Because with this, what bothered me the most is I wanted to dig into exactly the thing you were talking about, that juxtaposition. It may be a cliche, 
but that juxtaposition between extreme fame and extreme loneliness and emptiness and it never filling you up and you ending up. And I wanted to know what it was. We'd learned nothing about his family or why it was that at 16 he was sort of propelled to this stardom and he never seemed to have anything to ground him. What happened to him as a kid? You know, does he have, I don't know anything. That's because nobody's asked him any questions. I mean, I I draw, I wonder if either of you remember this, about 20 years ago or so, there was a documentary made by a very distinguished documentary maker called Molly Deneen about Jerry Halliwell just after I think she'd left the Spice Girls. And there's a very, very telling scene in it where they're sitting on a train and Jerry Halliwell is on the phone to somebody. She says, yeah, you know, I'm making this film with Molly Deneen. She's really nice. Uh, yeah, no, 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 don't worry. I'm in control of the edit. I control the edit. And this is all in the film. And when she puts the phone down, Molly says, I've just got to pick you up on that, Jerry. You don't control the edit. I control the edit. And it's a really memorable scene. So that's 20 years ago. 20 years later... These stars will not let anybody else control the edit. And as a result, to your point, Mariella, nobody asks them an awkward question. So the audiences are watching something that is, if you like, you could argue it's just a giant puff piece made by their own production company with their own people as executive producers in control. I say all that. I say this because it depresses me slightly. I've got a horrible feeling many people don't mind at all. And I think many people will watch the Robbie Williams doc as many, many people watch the Beckham's doc. But you're not watching what, I don't know, traditionally you would call documentary maker where the person making it is, if you like, at a distance from the person who's the subject. I felt that everything he said, I wanted to ask him a question about it. So I suppose I did engage with it, but I was just frustrated by the process because he said so many things that made you think, why on earth or why can't you let that go or why haven't you moved on from it look at your life now you know there's no sense of resolution for him it felt like it felt like he was still a big gaping wounded 16 year old Aisha wonder you've worked in politics and you know the world of politics I don't know if this is a fanciful parallel but is this a little bit like a politician going on to a daytime show getting softball questions rather than being interviewed by Jeremy Paxman in in other words is this what celebrities are doing now they're saying I will do it as long as I control it I mean what's interesting now is that those soft interviews the sofa interviews people used to think that they were soft interviews but actually often politicians can have their guard down during those interviews and sometimes actually those interviews are quite smart and they do ask tough questions one of the things very famously recently is that Rishi Sunak thought right I'm going to avoid a bit of scrutiny I'll just do some local media just BBC never think that about local journalists local journalists are really smart and work really really hard and Rishi Sunak got kebabbed several times on the uh, morning media round but both of you are absolutely right we are seeing a a, a, a much bigger push towards politicians, celebrities, public figures really going to extreme lengths to control their narrative. And because there is this explosion in media outlets now, podcasts, various news outlets, what politicians and what celebrities can do is they can really pick and choose who they do business with because there's such a fierce competition for their face, their voice, an interview with them. I mean, Mariella and I know we have to compete every day against so many different people to to get these interviews. So their conditions are getting tougher and tougher and tougher. But ultimately, you're right, Peter, people who like David Beckham and Victoria Beckham loved 
that series. And people who love Robbie Williams would be like, oh, bless Robbie, it's great to... But what Mariella said is right. It would have been a richer interview and I think it would have made us like him more Mm. if he had been subjected not to horrible questions or insensitive questions, but you can imagine... the any questions. I mean, my big takeaway was that I wanted to be interested in his mental health issues. I wanted to be interested in his insecurity. And as we talked about that juxtaposition, the price of young fame. You know, there's, there is an interesting story there. But my overriding impression I wrote this down was he's just a bit of a dick. <laughs> I think he is entirely ravaged by fame and his experience. And I think 16, one of the things that really struck me most was, you know, I mean, my, my, my daughter's 19. She's just gone up to uni and I feel like she's one of those little tiny tadpoles, you know, little tiny turtle on a beach. I mean, she just doesn't feel fully formed. And at 16, to be catapulted to that, that sort of success. I think, as you said, I think there's a really interesting story there and I wish that he was able to dispense with the narcissistic you know really unhealthy obsession with how he was wronged in some way and actually you know embrace all of the wonderful things that it's led to in his life and you know I don't know a bit of humility and gratitude I think goes a long way. Maybe that's in episode two. We won't. We we probably won't be watching, so we won't find out. Robbie Williams is available on Netflix now. Aisha, you've been an absolutely amazing guest. What I really love when we when we do this program is, you know, it's it's not really just a review show about TV. It's about the world in which it's set. And I think you've been incredibly game in discussing much bigger issues than just the sort of plot line of the shows this week. And and you've just she's been great, hasn't she, Peter? It's been a joy. Oh. It's been a joy. Well, thank you so much. I've absolutely loved it. And what what an honour to be on your podcast. Thank you so much. We're particularly keen to hear from you, our listeners, about what you've been watching, uh, what you've hated, what you've loved, what you agree or disagree with us about. And in fact, if you find any hidden gems, do let us know and we'll take a look at them. So you can send us an email, you can get in touch via our socials, or you can WhatsApp us. All the info is in the description. Thanks for listening and thanks to Aisha for being such a great guest. If you enjoyed the show, please do follow Have You Seen wherever you get your podcasts. And do join us next week when our guest will be the fantastic Professor Hannah Fry, no less. Thanks for listening. See you next Thursday. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.